Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 364 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing season two of the TV show Star Trek Discovery. And this will involve spoilers for all of season two, so just be aware of that. And we previously discussed Season 1 back in Episode 285, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Anthony Ha, making his 12th appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast Original Content. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014, and he has a story forthcoming in Lady Churchill's Rosebud Rissolet. So Anthony, welcome to the show. Hello, I'm happy to be back. The next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, making her 11th appearance on the show. She's a Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and lives in Northern California with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird. She considers Star Trek to be her third and best parent. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is Chris Avasco, making his ninth appearance on the show. From 2003 to 2009, he was the editor of Paradox, the magazine of historical and speculative fiction, and his short fiction has appeared in magazines such as Nightmare and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. He's also written three historical thrillers, all of which he's currently shopping around to agents, and his new Dungeons & Dragons supplement, Felosial's Ultimate Guide to Poison, is available now through the DMs Guild website. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Okay, so Chris has never been on the show to discuss Star Trek before, so I thought we would just start out. And Chris, why don't you just tell us a bit about your background as a Star Trek fan? Um, yeah, I mean, I consider myself a huge Star Trek fan. And uh, interestingly, I, you know, as a kid, was always aware of the original series, uh, you know, before Next Generation came on the air. But I actually had not watched it religiously. I had probably only caught you know, sporadic episodes here and there over the years. And it was really through uh, Next Generation was my gateway drug into, you know, tr uh, Trek fandom. Um, and after that, you know, I went back and watched the original series as well and uh, have watched all the series since then multiple times, probably, and the films and whatnot. And uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a huge fan. So I have this, I don't know if this is memory is correct or not, but I, I have this vague memory that we were all, all out to dinner one time and you were telling people that actually you thought maybe Voyager was your favorite Star Trek series. Am I just making that up? Uh, I don't know if you're making it up, but you're, yeah, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. No, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> I what mean, is? I, 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 I like Voyager. I would say, um, well, interestingly enough, uh, Discovery is uh, becoming uh, definitely vying for the top spot now as one of my favorite Star Trek uh, incarnations. But um, I would say it would either have to be Next Generation or Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. and uh, it's kind of hard to pick a favorite. I know I've mentioned like half of them right now. Place, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> well, so and then Anthony and Sarah were both on our previous Star Trek Discovery panel, but Chris, you weren't. So I'm just curious. And I guess I'll explain. So in our, our previous Star Trek Discovery panel, we just discussed the first nine episodes, and then there was mm -hmm. like the mid-season break, and we, we stopped there. So people haven't gotten our thoughts on the, you know, the second half of season one. So I thought I would just start off with you and just ask you, what did you think of season one overall, and just particularly that the second kind of movement of it? Right. Well, I mean, I definitely think it started to pick up speed with the second movement. I still was not entirely sold on it by the end of the first season, although I was guardedly optimistic uh, with regard to where it was going. I, th I definitely think it's significantly improved in the in the uh, second season. 
Um, I, oddly enough, I will just mention that I thought that the uh, the pilot episode, the two part, um, uh, you know, m- major episode that's introduced season one, I thought was one of the worst um, episodes of any Star Trek series <laughs> I had ever seen. I thought it was almost painfully and embarrassingly uh, bad to watch. Um, just I know, will sort of... fight you later. <laughs> <laughs> um, o- o- only because I, I felt there was it was chock full of you know as you know Bob dialogue and that type of thing and and I thought you know the performances as strong as they were couldn't really elevate. I just thought it was really really poorly written. Um, I, I kind of wish they had just done away with that entire two part opening and just started with the next episode. And I thought it would have been a stronger opening. But in any event, um, it definitely grew on me the more I watched it. And now again, I think the second season is. You know, has made uh, sort of a, a light year jump uh, ahead of of the first one. Yeah, you know, I um I just went back and re listened to our the previous Star Trek Discovery panel that we did, and I was really it was sort of reminding me that I I kind of had mixed feelings about you know the first half of season one. I thought there was a lot about it that was really solid, and then there were a lot of things that you know I was kind of like eh on, and I hadn't watched Discovery since we did that panel, so I went and I binged the second half of season one and all of season two in like three or four days or something. So, you know, I might have some of this stuff a little mixed up. Um, but I, I thought, you know, starting with um, the second half of season one, I thought it got really good. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I like more the um, the sort of dark political machinations and, you know, things like that. And so I, I, and I liked that um, a lot of the fan theories that I thought would be interest would be an interesting direction to explore. They went in that direction, so they made, you know, we had talked about is um, is Ash a Klingon sleeper agent, and that turned out to be true, and is Lorca from the Dark Mirror universe, and that turned out to be true. And um, you know, I I had been really sad when the Philippa Giorgio character was killed right at the beginning because I thought she was going to be a part of this series, and so then when she came back, uh, I was really excited about that. I guess I don't know if anyone's listening to this who hasn't watched the show, but I guess maybe I'll just say that, um, you know, or who hasn't if you haven't watched the show, maybe go back and listen to our previous panel. But then they do end up in the Dark Mirror universe where there's like an evil version of every character and uh, the the captain turns out to be from the Dark Mirror universe. And it all just gets really, yeah, lots of backstabbing and sort of Game of Thrones kind of stuff going on. Um, so how about Sarah? What did you think of the uh uh, pick up where we left off on that panel. And what'd you think of the, the second half of season one? Um, I thought it was great. I, uh, I totally, you know, it's funny. My biggest problem with season one in its entirety is that the way that they handled the Ash Tyler reveal, like why not just say that, you know, they did all this neurological surgery, like work to, you know, put a uh, Vulk inside of Ash's existing body. Like the fact that they sort of carved up a Klingon and made it look human is way more implausible than the idea that they would just, you know, use the existing, because it had been an existing Starfleet, you know, uh, person. Like why not just use his body and, and, so the fact that they sort of carved him up, carved up a Klingon and made him, you know, go through all of this torture to look like a human, to me, was much less plausible than the idea that they would just sort of put his brain inside of a human's body or something like that. Um, so I, that was actually the thing that I was least comfortable with uh, regarding season one. But I would like to say that 
I love the way that season one opened because I felt like it's the sort of standard Star Trek and the standard storytelling way of doing things to say, you know, to start with season, with the third episode, basically, and tell all of the first two episodes in flashbacks. And that is traditionally what we would ordinarily see. And so I feel like it was a really bold choice to start with those first two episodes that pretend like we're going to get a story about Giorgio. We're going to have a story about, you know, uh, the, uh, the Sh- Shenzo, the, the ship that they were on before. So, you know, the, I really appreciate that they did that. I find, I, I thought it was a, a really wonderful creative choice, but yeah, I mean, my, my, my main issue with that season is something I rarely hear. People never complain about the, the Ash thing, but I just felt like it sets up the expectation that medical tech is way more advanced than it actually is around that time. Um, and so then, all of the other medical things that they have later, you know, um, you're kind of like, well, why can't they just fix that if they have, if they have the technology to just completely build a human, um, you know, outside of a, of a Klingon, why don't they just do that? So I feel like because they did that, you know, there's just an element of, of the science fiction goes so far, it becomes unbelievable. Yeah, so I don't want to relitigate the beginning of season one. Like we're past that, so no time traveling back to then. So uh, we're just gonna have to, uh, you know, like take it for granted that Chris and and Sarah disagree on this point. But um, so uh, Anthony, what did you think of the uh, Ash Tyler uh, Klingon sleeper agent reveal? Um, I liked that as a twist because I think there had been, as you said, a lot of fan theories about it, and I was definitely all on board. I was disappointed with how they handled it because it felt like, and, and now we're talking about episodes that I haven't watched since they aired, I guess, about a year ago. So I may get some of the details wrong, but from what I can recall, basically he gets uh, put in, you know, the equivalent of the brig or whatever, isolated in some way. And he's basically like off stage for a lot of the those final episodes. So I remember being un, like unsatisfied because basically there's this big reveal and then they don't really do anything with it. And also to, to Sarah's point that it was just a very convoluted reveal because it was not just, oh, he's really Vogue or, oh, like his folks, like memories have been implanted, but this sort of, um, idea of these two personalities in this human body that was created from a Klingon body. And, and it just felt like it was a lot, like a lot to ask of the viewer. And then they didn't do enough with it. I guess around the, the, the other thing around that, that I, I didn't care for at all was that he kills Hugh. Um, and I just felt like that happened really fast. Uh, and I wasn't crazy about really anything that happened with that, that whole storyline of you being dead and, and spoiler warning coming back to life. Um, I don't know. Am I, am I alone there? Or I know, Chris, what'd you think of that, of, uh, Ash um, killing you? Well, no, I mean, I, I actually thought it was a pretty powerful twist, um, because it, 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 added an entire other layer of kind of emotional complexity to both the character, what he's going through, his relationship to other characters, particularly Stemets and, and whatnot on the, uh, on the ship. And um, the fact that it all kind of happened fast, I, it, it didn't bother me because I think it fit with the fact that he was, you know, uh, in a very strange mental place where he kind of wasn't in control of his own thoughts. And in that moment, you know, his his sort of short circuiting uh, brain circuitry, you know, uh, got the better of him. So no, I I actually that worked. Yeah, I for agree me. with that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know how much of my things. It was just like so nice for me to see a loving gay relationship on Star Trek, and for it to turn all like you know emo and uh, unhappy and everything. I kind of, I kind of, kind of like just liked it better when they were happy. I mean, I know like I, th- I, th- I think that's why they were really smart to have Wilson Cruz and Anthony Rapp uh, explain pretty much right away. Like the next morning, Wilson Cruz was you know basically said, "Hey, he's coming back." You know, and I think he must have cleared it with, you know, Discovery's brass and said, look, you know, this is going to be, there's going to be some backlash to this, you know, the whole, you know, kill your gaze trope. It's going to be a problem. And so if we're going to do this, we should let the fans know almost immediately that there's more coming and to trust us. Yeah, since I binged this all, I, I, I didn't see any of that stuff. But then, like, I found out he was alive again, just like six hours later or something. So, I mean... <laughs> It was all right, I guess. But um, I don't know, Anthony, what do you think? Yeah, I wasn't crazy about the... I mean, I guess in general, I'm I'm not wild about having characters die and come back because that feels a little cheap to me. And I think the fact that they had to sort of immediately publicly declare that this was going to be walked back is not... Um, a great sign that they, that was a, like it was a really strong storytelling choice. But I thought where it went, not so much in terms of how they brought him back, but what happens after they bring him back in season two and how the relationship evolves in those later episodes, that stuff I thought was really interesting and pretty strong. I guess that's another thing is, you know, there's this, this line that, well, I didn't like at all the part where Ash and, um, Hugh are like sprawling in the cafeteria or whatever. But then there's, there's a part after that where Saru says something like, you know, I'm sorry, sir, there's no Starfleet regulations for how, uh, like, Klingon sleeper agent and a guy who just came back from the dead or, you know, how you're supposed to deal with this. And it's like, yeah, that is it's sort of just like piling one thing on, like, sort of one. I don't know. I felt like I was going a little too far with, yeah, characters dying and coming back to life and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, this is Star Trek. They have a <laughs> wonderful grand history of bringing characters back to life. Right. But I like it better when there's, like... I don't know, like like a whole a whole movie, you know, <laughs> in between or something. But I don't know. I'm, maybe and I'm, even then, it wasn't that great. <laughs> maybe I'm just being grouchy. All right. So how about? I mean, one thing I'm not grouchy about is I really liked in the Mirror Universe how Tilly was like this warlord, like cat, space captain. Um, you know, the the alternate version of her. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was fun to do with her character, especially because she was obviously so opposite of that in every way uh, in the prime universe. Uh, anyone else have anything else that they liked about uh, sort of toward well, the end of I, season one? I'll just mention that in terms of that, what you just said with Tilly um, for, for, you know, the, the, the many sort of interesting quirks and whatnot that her character has, I was actually really impressed um, just with the way she was able to, uh, you know, obviously she's she's playing Tilly one way, she's playing the warlord another way. But then what I thought was really uh, interesting to watch on screen was how our, you know, the, the 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 primary universe Tilly then had to pretend to be the warlord and the kind of blending of those two personalities that you got in that. That was actually I thought the I had the most fun watching that. Yeah, I mean, I really liked Tilly in season two. I remember having sort—I was sort of like lukewarm on her in season one, but she—I don't know if she grew on me or if uh, the character was was different or anything in season two. But I—I I just loved her um, in 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 these season two episodes. Yeah, I agree that she's—I don't know that she's my favorite character because there's actually a lot of strong competition for that. But she was definitely one of my favorite elements in in pretty much all of these episodes. Yeah. So. Uh... 
So who is so if who else are some of your favorite? Let's get into season two because I know that's what everyone's here to find out about our thoughts about season two. So Anthony, go into going into season two. Who would you say were some of your favorite characters in the show? Um, well, so again, not to relitigate old stuff, but I will just say really quickly, I the very end of season one left a really bad taste in my mouth, and I really hated the finale and thought it just rushed. And the way they just sort of wrapped up the Klingon war. Um, so quickly left a bad taste in my mouth. And so I actually hadn't watched season two until I found out we were doing this episode and then kind of binged all of them. So I, I went in with, with relatively low expectations. I mean, probably Saru was probably the, the one element who kind of I liked about season one that kind of I carried over into, into season two. Although that was one of the things I was sort of suspicious of going in was the fact that you know, it seemed like they were setting up Saru to be the captain, only to have that ripped away fairly quickly. Um, but I, I was actually really, really happy with the direction they took Saru in um, this this season. And, and I was in general kind of skeptical of Captain Pike and of all the Enterprise stuff, but I thought that was also handled really well. Yeah, I agree with you that the I was underwhelmed by the finale of season one. I also agree with you that Saru is possibly my favorite character. I just really like in Star Trek the sort of quiet professionalism. You know, I don't I don't want people like per, this is just my personal taste, but I don't want people like squabbling or like getting angry with each other or whatever. I want to watch people who are really smart and really competent, you know, dealing with problems and working together to solve them. And I feel like Saru is even though he's in all the weird makeup and everything, he's almost the most believable character in the show. Like that I, I believe more than any of the other characters that he's actually in Starfleet and this is his job and this is what he does every day and he takes it seriously and everything like that. Um, how about Chris? What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely agree that, um, Saru is one of my favorite characters. Um, I actually really, uh, she's, she's more of a minor character, but I love, love, love Tig Notaro's, uh, portrayal of Reno, the, the sort of curmudgeonly engineer. Um, I feel like she's, she's kind of channeling that that cantankerousness of bones in a way that it almost seems like more bones than bones um and and it's and it's just so much fun to watch her whenever she's on screen um yeah. i actually think that uh i was similarly skeptical i was like oh man are we you know are we going to have the you know this all be a, the, the pike show once once you find out pike is on there and then i was really really uh charmed by the way Anson Moot plays that that character um I think he's he did a phenomenal job um so you know he ended up being a, a character that I did not expect at all I was going to like and I actually really thought he ended up being a complex interesting character um and and, and the other character I'll just mention is I actually think that there's a lot of there are like two or three characters that I think because of the way they interact with Burnham were fascinating to me and it was basically the three members of her family i think spock and and sarek and uh amanda all i just was was completely riveted whenever any one of those three was on the screen particularly because they each had such unique and complicated relationships with burnham and just watching the way those those uh relationships developed was uh, one of the main and the strongest through lines in season two that I think kept pulling me through it. Now, so Anthony was kind of alluding to this, but do you think that the plan originally was to have Saru become the captain? And then in response to fan response that they're like, we need to 
include more familiar elements in season two? We need to have Captain Pike and we need to have Spock or, or do you think that was the plan all along or I don't know if Sarah, do you have any idea or any suspicions? Um, I definitely think that some of the dialogue, I don't know whether or not they added a, any kind of, uh, uh, like, I don't, I don't, I doubt very much that they brought on the whole idea of Pike and Spock in order to deal with the backlash, because the backlash was minor financially for them. Okay. Like, it, it was loud on the internet, but it really didn't affect the, overwhelming success of the show uh so you know uh, unless they're terribly terribly concerned about the optics of these people who will complain no matter what uh (laughs) i seriously doubt it however the 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 producer did say um i think kurtzman said that he added a couple of lines of dialogue to sort of placate the people who are upset, like they added the line about the hair growing, um, after the Klingons growing out their hair after the war. Um, and what's hilarious is I am a member of several Star Trek groups. Uh, and one of, one of the things that I found hilarious is that the people who were complaining were basically saying, they're listening to us. You know, they, they, they changed, they added this for us. And I'm like, they're making fun of you by adding it. Like they're basically saying that, you know, that, Oh my God, I, they can't believe they had to include a line of exposition so obvious, uh, in order to clear this up. And any, any, any sort of plot discrepancies or canon inconsistencies that can be addressed so simply are by definition not important. You know, we, we don't need to know why the Klingons didn't have hair, you know, in season one and have hair in season two. Um, we could have even inferred that uh, fact about, you know, them having it shaved during the war. But so if the fans hadn't complained, do you think the plan was always for the Klingons to have hair in season two? Or was the whole just the idea of them having hair? Was that a fan? I don't know. I just know that Kurtzman said in an interview that they added that line to sort of, you know, calm down the fans who were upset about it. Uh Um, So what did you... What did everyone? I think. Let's see. Chris said you liked Captain Pike. I thought he was awesome. Um, I also had sort of like I, I didn't wasn't looking forward to the character that much, but he he was so charming. I just man, I want to be. I want him to be my captain on a starship. Like that just seems like such a good time. Um, Anthony, what'd you think about Captain Pike? Yeah, I thought he was terrific. And like I said, I I was sort of skeptical going in, and I'd also seen a few episodes of. Um, the Inhumans, which is one of the worst television shows I've ever seen in which he plays Black Bolt, who is completely silent. And I mean, I don't think it's necessarily his performance that's the problem, but like, given that that was the major role I saw him in, I was like, this is not going to go well. But like, from the moment he's on screen, it, he like completely owns it. And I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that Pike has a super defined character just from, you know, the handful of other appearances that we've seen him. But I, I did like him as this sort of, you know, a captain sort of in the Kirk mold, but maybe a little bit less emotional, a little more supportive of, of the crew. And, and it was, it, it, it was definitely just like a cap. I was like, yes, I'm happy when I see you on screen and I would, I would happily serve on your ship. Well, well, for people who don't know, let's just say where we've seen him before. So this this character originates in the original Star Trek, the original series pilot, and then you know Paramount didn't didn't like him, and so they they recast him as uh, you know as Captain Kirk, 
And then uh, my understanding is that at some point they uh, they ran out of scripts and they were kind of desperate. And so they took all the they took the original pilot, which was called The Cage, and they adapted it into a two part special called The Menagerie, where they created this frame story. And then they used footage from the, uh, you know, from the cage in that. And so basically our two points of reference for, for Captain Pike is that he was the um, captain of the Enterprise when they went down to this planet, Talos 4, where there were these like aliens with large heads who had amazing telepathic powers. And then from the menagerie, we also see that uh, he's in some sort of horrific accident and is confined to a sort of motorized wheelchair kind of thing and is badly scarred and can't speak, can only sort of respond by having a little light shine to based on his brainwave patterns to express what he wants. Um, and I thought that, you know, given that that's all, oh, and then I guess, we you know, we see him in the the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. I don't know if there's anything else, but um, that's what I'm familiar with. But I thought given that those are our reference points, uh, I thought they did an amazing job of, of developing that character in a really compelling way and, and making that, you know, the, the bits of information that we do have about him meaningful. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. And I, I actually think um, the fact that they decided to, the, the, the choice of giving him that flash of uh, awareness of his future with the time crystal, where he, he now knows where he's headed apparently um, in terms of his, his injury I think that's one of those things like you were talking about before, one of these really dark psychological twists that the show took that I thought is just mind-blowingly awesome. I mean, like, you know, just the idea that he's now carrying that baggage around adds another whole layer to all of the choices he makes going forward. And then and then in terms of the other aspect of his character, how charming he was, again, I feel like in some ways, a lot of the things that I find endearing or, or interesting about all the characters, again, I feel like it gets back to the fact that Burnham, you know, really sort of remains the, the kind of emotional heart of the show. And a lot of why I find him so charming is the, the, the sort of the ways that he interacts with Burnham and almost becomes kind of like not, not quite a father figure, but, um, you know, how he interacts with her is a lot of how we get his character revealed and and I think that um, is true of a lot of the other characters in the show. It, it all kind of comes back to how they interact with Burnham, whether you're talking about, you know, um, yeah. her, her love interest, uh, who I'm blanking on his name, the... the Ash. Ash, yeah. Um, or, or any of the other characters. I mean, so many of them are kind of defined. They're all defined by their, their relationships with um, Burnham, including Saru. I mean, there's a lot of, of, of that on screen as well. Yeah, let me just say about the moment where Captain Pike has to decide whether to take the time crystal, and he knows that by taking it, he's locking himself into this this mm. horrifying future. I just thought that was maybe my favorite moment in season two. Certainly, it was up there. No, no, it wasn't, but it's it's certainly up there. Um, but it was just yeah, and and that's what I like. Like I was saying, part of the reason I like Star Trek is I like seeing these people be noble and you know be willing to sacrifice themselves and be a better version of humanity than than you know we typically deal with, and and that was. You know that that moment sort of epitomized that for me. Mm -hmm. Um. So let's see. Um. Anything else to say about Captain Pike before we move on to the other characters? I think it was um, an interesting thing. You know, when you said that uh, Paramount didn't initially like the guy who played Pike. What's funny is that 
that guy was a way better actor. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, objectively than uh, than Shatner ever was. So it's kind of funny that you know when you watch that the pilot as a modern audience, you can't help but be like, damn, it's it's too bad they didn't keep this guy. I mean, you know, I, I enjoy Shatner for what he brings to the table, but it it I I feel like. What they were trying to say is that he's too good of an actor for 1966 and that 1966 really wanted that sort of, you know, fake uh, persona style that was so prevalent in the films and, and TV at the time, um, you know, where, you know, actual acting was almost seen as a detriment. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the... I was very pleased to see the the Spock and the and the Pike character. Um, I was a little disturbed by the petition uh, to launch a Pike series, um, just because along with that petition, there were there was like a fan petition that came out um, asking that we get a Pike and Spock show because of the popularity of these characters. And I totally understand that. I agree with how charming they were. And I think one of the strong suits of Discovery in general is the casting is amazing. I mean, you know, the the the, the side characters that they bring in are just on point and they really do a wonderful job of, you know, adding to the overall story and the overall character arcs. But I there was something a little disturbing about, you know, the the what came along with that petition is a lot of people saying that they wanted Pike instead of Discovery. Um, and that, that was troublesome to me because I, I feel like there are, there's a very large contingent of Star Trek fans that want nostalgia more than they want Star Trek. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I agree. Like much as I loved Pike in this, I, I, I feel like his story, we, like we know everything we need to know. I don't need to see any more of it. Let me just say, though, about the casting, because I, I read William Shatner's memoir and he was saying that the, the issue that they had with the original Captain Pike was that he was sort of a, just a naturally dignified, you know, reserved sort of actor. And then you have him playing off Spock, who's also naturally reserved, dignified kind of actor. And <laughs> it was just sort of like, you know, um, it was too much of the same thing. And so if you if you have Spock playing off William Shatner, who's like boisterous and, you know, sort of a ham and everything, that it just has a diff it has a more kind of engaging energy to, to have that contrast. That's funny. Well, and also if you watch Spock in the cage versus the rest of the original series, he definitely becomes much more reserved in, in those later in the rest of the show versus in the cage where I think they're still finding the character. He, you know, is a lot shoutier, a lot more emotional. And I think Leonard Nimoy has said in interviews that it was very much like, well, I, I had to sort of do that in that context. But once I had this, you know, read between the lines, really hammy, overacting captain, I could really do this very understated performance. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we we haven't really talked about the plot at all. It's it's like so complicated. I don't even know how much I want to get into it. But I'll just say say qu very quickly. Um, they they're getting these sort of like red bursts of light that are appearing at different points in space that seem to be leading them. You know, seems to be sort of helping them out or leading them to where they need to go. And that's basically sort of the first half of season two. Um, so let's just put a pin in that for a second. But like sticking with Spock, what did you guys think of the way that Spock was portrayed in this show? Because I, I kind of I liked the character, but he seemed much different than than the Leonard Nimoy Spock, who seems to me very kind of, you know, good natured and wise and, uh, you know, imperturbable. And, and this Spock seemed very like angry and intense. Um, well, he's supposed to be younger, um, which I think is part of it. Like he's still developing into the Spock that we 
you know, come to know and love. But um, I, I also think that the show has a responsibility to not, again, delve too much into nostalgia and and just try to find copies of you know original performances and it's a, a much bolder choice to find somebody who channels just enough of those energies and just enough of you know the the various depictions by Spock that we've seen by now over the decades um, without trying to outright copy him or replace him. So I feel like, you know, Discovery in general with the casting, obviously, I just said they, they do such a good job. And uh, Ethan Peck was such a fantastic, uh, you know, idea for, to fill those shoes. I mean, he just did a wonderful job. But I do think that the differences were a strength and, and not a detriment to the, to the, to the series. And, you know, for them to, to be like, we're going to do something different with him and we're going to, you know, explore real sibling relationships, real dynamics between Spock and Burnham. So. Even like where he's smashing up the chessboard. I don't know. <laughs> I he's mean, a Vulcan he... or he's like half Vulcan. Well, yeah, but he's, I wouldn't smash human. up a chessboard and I'm not even half Vulcan. <laughs> I mean, he's half human, and and, and I would the smash way up that the series, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, Monopoly. I would smash <laughs> up a Monopoly board. Man, that game makes me furious. So, <laughs> if they made a Monopoly, that would have been a lot more uh, plausible. right. Because then you could channel all your anger at capitalism into the <laughs> Monopoly board. Well, I mean, I, I think one of the things that Discovery does well is they're looking at some of the things that were actually detractions from the previous iterations of Star Trek that we never saw it that way, right? Like. I am seeing more of the flaws of TNG, for instance, the one that I grew up on and loved. I mean, I, I watched the pilot when I was eight years old on the living room floor. It's this indelible memory that I have, right? But TNG had flaws. And the more that I watch the discovery, the more I see those flaws through the differences. And part of that is this horror, sort of like colonialistic spirit of, well, we've, we've figured everything out as a human race and we're just here to solve problems for other, you know, other races that haven't figured that out, right? And and so I feel like because they have come in and said, you know, we, Star Trek Discovery, for instance, we're like, we're dealing with trauma. We're not just like, oh, something bad happens to the character and the next episode, they're perfectly fine, which was one of the demands of having this serialized, you know, format that they had where every episode was like a short story. And that was fine. That totally worked in the 80s. But I feel like we need you know, what Discovery is doing now. Um, and it's more real. So to get back to the what we're talking about, Spock, um, we never really saw Spock struggle with his humanity. He just accepted it. And, and he sort of arrived having gotten, you know, to the place of peace with it. And it was more of a struggle for the other characters. But it makes sense that this child growing up on Vulcan would struggle with, with both halves, that there would be this opposition, that there would be groups that were threatened by Spock's, even Spock's existence, you know. So I, I really think that, that, you know, that to me, even though he's, you know, knocking over a chessboard, it, it makes sense that, you know, he'd be like, having grown up on Vulcan told to repress all of these things where he has moments where he just, it explodes. And this happened in the Kelvin films as well. And both times I, I agree with it. I think it's a, it's a more realistic choice. So Chris, what'd you think of Spock? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just, I thought it worked really well and I thought it, it worked organically with what we've seen before, because I, I agree. It was like young Spock still coming to terms with reconciling the two sides of his, of his nature and, um, kind of becoming, uh, 
the 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 person that we all knew from the original series and i i like that I, it, it i think we're kind of left with the idea that a lot of what we consider to be spock's sort of iconic personality grew out of again i keep harping on this but his relationship with his sister um and i mean there's even gosh i it's been now like a, a few weeks since i saw the final episode but the 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 I think Burnham's last words to him, I remember at the time that I was watching it, thinking to myself, like, oh, man, that is like she gives him some piece of advice that basically it's sort of like she's telling him, like, hey, you know, we the readers know it's like a wink, wink. Hey, you know, make sure that you, you know, put up with the kind of nonsense you're going to get from people like McCoy later on and stuff. And, and it's like, you know, be, be, I, I, I should have looked it up before we had this, this, this talk, but you know, it's very clear that this relationship with his sister was sort of one of the defining relationships in his life and shapes the person that he goes on to become. I want to pick up on what Sarah was saying about how this show is about characters dealing with trauma because I guess another thing I sort of wonder about is, you know, Spock is seeing these visions and then also Tilly is seeing these visions and they both think that they must be, you know, having mental illness or something. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like, isn't aliens a more like likely explanation just given all these characters have experienced? And, you know, there doesn't seem to be any sort of mental health counseling or anything on the ship, which seems sort of odd to me. I mean, there's a scene where uh, who is it? I think it's uh, Dr. Culber. He goes to the Admiral and says, like, didn't you used to be a therapist? I need to talk about this. And it's like, why does he need to talk to the Admiral? Like, don't they have any Well, there's no ship's counselor in, in TOS. And, I mean, a ship's counselor doesn't show up until TNG, right? So we have to assume that if it wasn't uh, a part of the crew complement in TOS, it wouldn't be a part of the crew complement at, at this time as well. Well, and that it's this idea that the ship, that Starfleet in general and these ships have gone from being smaller and more purely militaristic to what we get in the next generation. <laughs> it's more like a floating city with, you know, or, you know, sp you know, a uh, flying city with like every single possible job you can imagine, but that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see that in Discovery. Well, no, I, I get that they don't have like a psychic counselor, but just given that this is our civilization a couple hundred years in the future, it just seems like something that they would just realistically that they would have given the size of the crew even, well, even I feel so. like I feel like mental health is you know their their way of of exploring humanism in discovery like each of the show has kind of each each of the shows kind of has its own way of being like this is our version of how we think that humanism would work in this society right so i think that that this discovery's version is more like mental health is a natural part of life from, you know, the time that, that a, a child is raised, uh, and you, so the idea that we would have a separate counselor to go to when something goes wrong is more like, you know, mental health doesn't become part of life until you need it. Um, and so, because like in general, I'm really comfortable and happy with the fact that this crew expresses emotions. This crew is happy and comfortable expresses emotion. You know, there's, there've been people in, in fan groups who are mad about it, who are like, well, Burnham cries too much. And it's like, well, yeah, cause the, what they're trying to say is that tears are healthy. When you're going through something that's genuinely traumatic, tears are a natural human response. And so, you know, in, in TNG, we had this almost asexual, you know, uh, 
group of people that just never, that always felt like they had private lives that were hidden from us. Right. That's why the, the, the last episode, when they all come together to play, you know, to play poker and, and Picard says, Oh, I should have done this a long time. Like they finally get to the point after eight years together of, okay, I'm going to hang out with you now. But it's like they all had, you know, private lives that were hidden mostly. We saw little glimpses of it here and there, but I feel like on discovery, it's a more organic, more natural feeling where these people are, are automatically friends. They're working and living together. They're getting mixed up with each other. Um, and it's just a, a much more natural, believable setting. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's this conflict between do you want uh, relatable characters on Star Trek or do you want uh, aspirational characters on Star Trek? I'm more in the aspirational camp, but I can, I, I, you know, I, I'm willing to go either way. But um, how about Anthony? What do you think? Where do, where do you fall on that uh, spectrum? I think I'm more on the aspirational side. And, and certainly I think that was one of the reasons why... As much as I enjoy watching the Abrams films, uh, they haven't really stuck with me the way um, a lot of other Star Trek has. But I think Discovery actually finds a really good balance. And, and I think sort of one of the signature moves that I noticed this season is that you get characters who are conflicted and you actually see why they're conflicted. But that in the end, they, they make the sort of noble or, or correct choice. And, and I mean, sometimes that can just be a little moment where I think there are multiple shots where something terrible happens to Michael and you see she's like frozen for a second or two. And then she remembers where she is, she remembers who she is and sort of does, you know, the heroic thing. And I feel like that's a, a smart way to sort of split the balance of not making them purely heroic, purely, you know, completely unrelatable, but at the same time, not feeling like you have to have everybody just acting on your emotions all the time and shouting and, and basically acting like the characters in the Abrams films. I guess I'll just add, I mean, that uh, one thing that sort of struck me is that Captain Pike seems to be religious or at least open to religion in a way that I don't associate with Star Trek. I mean, I, I was always struck with this uh, line Gene Roddenberry said where he said something like, uh, in the Star Trek future, everyone's an atheist and better for it. Um, so, I, I mean, as a devout atheist myself, uh, I, I kind of like the, uh, you know, the just give me my space, space atheists. But I don't know if this is maybe... Uh, early enough in the timeline that some of the I also people like, are still... like that that quote as a as a you know as a fantasy, but I also think that it's tinged a little bit with the Roddenberry colonialism aspect. <laughs> well, and the, the franchise over time has certainly become much more open to religion that that you see, like I guess particularly in Deep Space Nine, um, maybe less human religion, but but you know with with the Bajorans and and so I I think that. Um, in, just in terms of the direction of the show, as opposed to sort of what makes sense in universe, I think there, it did start from this sort of purely kind of everyone is, you know, there's no mention of religion whatsoever. And then it sort of slowly kind of creeps in as the world building becomes more complex. So I didn't have a problem with it, uh, here. It also makes sense from a storytelling perspective that in order to show the atheism of a particular universe, you discuss what's wrong with various religions around you, right? And so, you know, if, if you bring up religion, the whole point is to, you know, sort of provide a, an allegory for the various things that are wrong with our religions. And so I see them doing more of that, uh, which I think is a different way of arriving at the same conclusion. I mean, even the episode that they had uh, where they're all, you know, the New Eden Right. Like, yes, they brought up religion, but only to explain that the whole reason why these 
this religion exists uh, is because of science and because of a historical event that they were not aware took place. Well, right. I have no issue with, you know, some aliens having a, a fake made up religion based on misinterpreting uh, super advanced technology and things like that. I mean, I, I really like that. But it just sort of struck me that Pike, I was just a little surprised that Pike himself was was so religious in this show. Well, it seemed like he was more that he was interested in the idea of faith and the idea of religion, but in the same way that like a comparative religion professor would be now, it doesn't necessarily mean they subscribe to a particular faith. Yeah. Like he said that his father was a, a comparative religion professor, which you would still have, you know, people studying religions at that time. Yeah. And I definitely never got the sense that he was practicing a particular religion as much as that, yes, he had the academic interest in it. And then he also may have had uh, I, you know, I think he was perhaps had a spiritual side to him, but not necessarily a religious side to the extent that there's a distinction between those two. Like, I don't think he I, I, there was nothing that indicated to me that he he defined himself as a member of any particular faith so much as he might have had some personal, um, you know, uh, spiritual ideas about there being some things in the universe that maybe can't be explained or are beyond our understanding and and being open to that possibility. Well, I mean, and you know, like I said, I always like these episodes where, you know, somebody's religion turns out to be a total sham. But I, I actually <laughs> didn't really care for this episode um, where, they, like you mentioned, where they go to the Terralysium or whatever, the, the New Eden thing. Hmm. It just like seemed really, I don't know, I felt like I was watching the Orville or something in that episode. It just felt kind of like disjointed and, and not very, it didn't seem to have a lot of authority to me. Um I don't know if anyone else had that same impression I think of that was, episode. To, to me, it was definitely one of the weaker episodes, if for no other reason that I think it felt like it wasn't a particularly well-developed um, religion. It just seemed like mm -hmm. they threw together a bunch of cliches and said, this is a religion. Um, and it was it was just very facile and so didn't feel organic to me. It just felt like somebody's idea of what, like, oh, let's make up a religion and throw in, you know, this, that, and the other uh, cliche. And you just don't see that much of the world. I mean, it's really this one mm. character who's been like searching for the truth and then a little bit of the woman who runs the town. And that's basically it. So I, I think just because for that reason, it feels a bit thin. Yeah. All right. So, uh, sounds like we're all pretty much in agreement there. I'm also going to, my other like main criticism sort of, of, of these early episodes, most of which I really liked and I thought were pretty strong was, you know, like my, my, my man, Saru, my, my favorite character here. <laughs> uh, he, I, and so they have this, um, episode where you think he's going to die. And I was, I was legitimately broken up about that. Um, and then he sort of like conquered his fear, his, uh, which McCollum's fall off. He's uh, ganglia. Ganglia fall off. Um, but then he's kind of like totally off the reservation in the next episode. And, you know, uh, Pike says to him, just like stay out of this for a second. And then he just like jumps in. He's like, no, you will not do this to us anymore. And and I mean, uh, that kind of drove me crazy. Because again, I, I do want to see professionalism and you know he's going being... through puberty he's basically <laughs> going through puberty after losing his ganglia i mean i thought that was that was pretty clearly what they were trying to say there that you know he mm -hmm. this this whole there was a lot of parallels actually to uh like his dark materials of you know this sort of species that you know effectively 
goes through puberty and is culled after going through puberty by, you know, this, this other group that, that lives on the same planet. Um, the name of them is escaping me right now. The the Ba'ul. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I thought it was a, a really cool way of sort of, uh, explaining that, that he finds out, no, this is just a natural part of, of, of the development of our race, uh, where we lose our fear and sort of become, you know, more empowered. And so, of course, the, the first couple months of that, he's sort of going to be drunk with power and, and, and totally, you know, you get to see teenage Saru. No, I get that it was a plot point that this is a biological thing he's going through. I just, I kind of liked him the way he was and. <laughs> I didn't like well, knowing it. Did you? Because my feeling was that after that specific episode, which that was a plot point that he was going through this, is that there's still an element of that he's changed. But in a lot of ways, it felt to me like he went back to the Saru that we knew before. So it didn't feel like this wild swing, except in that one episode. And I think that makes sense because because it was you know yeah. as we said it was so close to him suddenly it was kind of like you know putting the emotion chip in data or lore it's like right. they, they could go berserk because they've never had to deal with these sorts of feelings before and so you know um it was you know that same sort of sort of thing yeah yeah all right so so yeah like i said so the first half of this season is about following these red lights in the sky around and seem seeming like there's some sort of um you know agenda or something that they're supposed to fulfill and i thought that the i thought it was i thought it was pretty pretty solid except for those episodes i mentioned but i thought it was less good than the um the second half of season one um but then it sort of takes this turn where it gets darker and we find out that um that starfleet so so there's this branch of um starfleet which is sort of like the black ops intelligence spy agency called um section 31 and we find out that they had this sort of like supercomputer that's kind of gone all Skynet on everybody and is, is taking over. And at that point, so, oh, and actually, no, sorry, before we even get to that, the the the, the part where um, Pike goes down to the um, Talos 4 and there's the sort of, you know, uh, apparitions created with the telepathic powers. It was at that episode, it kind of like, I was like, wow, I'm actually really, really into this now. And then we get into the... Um, yeah, the whole Section 31 thing. And I was just pretty much riveted by the show from that point on. And I just had this real feeling of just like uh, unease or I don't know how to put it. Just, you know, te- I was just tense and, you know, there's this sort of impending doom. Um, but so, um, uh, Anthony, what do, do you agree with me that did, did you feel like the show picked up uh, sort of in the at the midpoint there? Yeah, I mean, there were serialized elements before that, um, the, the Tilly storyline and the Hugh storyline that kind of led into each other. And, and so it wasn't like I was bored before, but I definitely noticed when, when I was binging this whole thing in preparation for this episode that like the, the first, the earlier episodes I liked, but, but wasn't, it, it was definitely, I'm going to watch another one because I need to get through a certain amount, um, to, to be ready versus once, um, basically once Spock returns, and then the control storyline moves to the forefront. Um, I mean, I definitely still have reservations and criticism, but as just sort of pure engaging storytelling, it basically locks in and, and I just like tried to finish the rest of it as quickly as I could because it, I was fully engaged. I mean, does anyone disagree that the season two gets better and better as it goes along? I, I disagree with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I don't, 
I there are very few shows where I I sit around thinking, well, was this episode better than that one? It's just not the way my brain works. But I am I tend to see it as one long movie. So season one is one long movie. Season two is one long movie, and in part because they're doing this unique thing that really you know they only they played with this in in Deep Space Nine. But, you know, this, this, where they're telling this whole story as well as telling mini stories. I didn't have a problem with New Eden because it felt to me like a self-contained Star Trek. It felt like an episode of TNG. I think, in fact, I think that's one of the ones that Frakes directed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he did a great job. Uh, but I feel like the, uh, you know, I don't think it, it got better so much as Discovery is really good at spending the first couple episodes building up a backstory. And then all of a sudden, all of these details that we've been paying attention to start to explode and connect. And so I think that what you're, you're observing is part of this, you know, things are finally making sense. Things are coming together. And there's that cohesive storyline that we're seeing where a main threat is emerging. Yeah. It's partly inherent in the narrative structure. Yeah. But you didn't feel like it got worse toward the end. You're just saying it was equally no. strong throughout the season. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And, and I think I would agree with that too. I mean, I don't, I don't think it, I, I was pretty much on board f- from very early on. I think there were one or two episodes that I think were slightly, you know, in, in, in hindsight were weaker than some of the others. But again, I, I agree totally with, with what was just said that the, the, the fact that you had, even though there were what felt like self-contained episodes, they were, there were always these back and forth links between all of the episodes that you started to realize, ah, oh, this is really, this is interesting. It was kind of like a puzzle you were trying to piece together yourself and and try to figure out like how are these episodes linked because clearly they are i mean you knew that the the red the signals were linking them but you want there were you know lots of other little clues being seeded in there um and that to me was fun from from early on in the season as well and I then mean, you know it, it it definitely did not get worse it, it just continued to build and build and build and build but i don't think it was building from a place where it needed to get better it just was building yeah. momentum were yeah. there any aspects of that puzzle that you feel like you put together before they were revealed in the show? Oh, it's so hard to say now with 2020 hindsight. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, because I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at it through the lens of knowing everything. I don't remember, honestly. So I don't want to claim that I did. You I do just, remember just, thinking Chris, that no one's ever the... going to know. Just say that you figured <laughs> right. it yes, all. I guessed it all. <laughs> uh, sorry, Sarah, what were you, what were you saying? I just, I I do remember thinking that, you know, the reveal that Michael was the Red Angel felt like a fake out. And I kind of knew that there was something Mm -hmm. else there, especially because it would be sort of too obvious if it was Michael the whole time. Like all the fan forums at the time were talking about, well, who's the Red Angel? And there were all these theories about various, you know, aliens coming back from other, you know, other series where we had seen them. Um, You know, is it Picard? And, you know, will they have like, you know, will this have something to do with the new Picard series, that kind of thing? And so it was always very interesting to watch that. But, you know, I did feel like when they said it was Michael, I was like, there's something else there that they're not telling us. And there was. Were there any just really dumb like or like off the wall or random fan theories about who the Red Angel was? Oh, yeah. But those are totally forgettable. Like this was this was like three months ago. So I remember going, well, that's dumb. But I don't remember what they actually had said because there's just so much quantity. And, and I can't help it. I get into it whenever, you know, because we get each episode each week. You know, there's whole like spoiler threads that are being posted in all of these groups where people go at it for 600 comments. It's hilarious. Right. But so so for people who haven't actually watched the show and are just following along. So it turns out that these signals are being sent back through time 
by this character called the Red Angel, who we we realize by this point is some sort of humanoid in a super advanced time travel suit from the future. And so um, based on some sort of analysis, they decide it's Michael uh, coming back from the future. Some sort of, I forget if it was DNA, DNA yeah, analysis DNA. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they concoct this plan. So... So basically, they're afraid that the Red Angel, by continuing to travel through time, is creating an opening for this this AI from the future to come into their time and 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 screw everything up. And so they're like, "We got to take this Red Angel out of the equation." And I thought this was this was I, I said before this was my favorite part of the season. And I don't think I've ever seen this in science fiction before. At least nothing comes to mind where there's this time travel from the future and they know who it is in the past. And so they're like, "All right, well, let's kill the person it is in the past." And this is going to force the version in the future to come back and save the version in the past because otherwise they won't exist. And then we can trap the time traveler from the future when when mm-hmm. they appear to save the ver- the past version of themselves. I thought that was totally brilliant. Uh, I was just riveted uh, when that was going yeah. on. And well, that it was also both the plan and then also I think we got really good character moments, too, because we had Michael absolutely saying, I'm in, let's do this. And then all these characters, uh, particularly George O, who ostensibly are much more selfish or, or invested in, in other things. And, and it's sort of the way the, the subtle and then not so subtle ways that it comes out that they really care about Michael and want to protect her. Um, just from like the pure drama perspective, I thought made that episode really strong too. Yeah. And shout out to the, to the very realistic portrayal of being in a different atmosphere. Like it, when that had happened on TNG, it was like, you know, there's some fog and all of a sudden the characters are like, <laughs> <laughs> like when you can't fucking breathe that's a that's you know that's and and when the the air is actively destroying your lungs and causing them to bleed from the inside out and you know like that was a that was a a holy crap that scene like oh my god that was that was generally anxiety inducing which should be like that's that's what the character would have gone through it was reminiscent of some scenes i've been watching recently in chernobyl Yes, quite. <laughs> yeah. The only thing that sort of I was surprised no, none of the characters brought up was doesn't Michael in the future, isn't it likely that Michael in the future knows something we don't about, about you know, is, is doing these things for a good reason? Because, like, we know Michael is a, you know, well-intentioned, smart person. And so if, uh, you know, is is capturing her really that good of an idea? I mean, I could see why they might want to do it anyway. I was just surprised that that conversation never happened. It didn't just, yeah, that it didn't come up and then there was a reason why there, we, we have to do this anyway. Yeah. Okay, so somebody mentioned George O. I just want to say, like, I loved that character in this. So she, um, you know, she's the emperor from the alternate timeline and she, then she becomes a high-ranking, um, you know, spy from for, for Section 31. And I just, I, I thought she was fantastic in this. And, uh, you know, that she's kind of, you know, manipulating people, but she seems to like her heart's basically in the right place because she has some sort of emotional connection with Michael. And but you never really know. I I, I thought there was a a mm-hmm. pretty high chance that she was going to end up absconding with the uh, the data sphere thing herself, and then that she was going to be the main villain in season three or something. Uh, obviously, that didn't happen. But uh, <laughs> you know, it was it was set up that you you thought maybe that might happen. I guess we we totally I didn't totally didn't explain about this data sphere. So. Uh, at some point in the first half of the season, they get this data sphere where it's like every, it's like the library of Alexandria 
and it just has all this information. And then it turns out that this AI needs this data sphere to, um, you know, achieve full consciousness. And um, so I guess I'll just say, so then it turns out that the Red Angel is actually Michael's mom and that she didn't die like we thought she did. She'd actually been transported into the future and has been coming back over and over again trying to to fix things, but has decided that the data sphere, you know, all her efforts to, to destroy it, uh, have proven futile. And so she had, uh, put it in the, planted it in the past in the path of discovery, hoping that they would, uh, figure out something to do with it. Um, do I have that all right? Anything I need, anything else we need to explain about that? More or less. I, 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 again, though, that's one of those really amazing dark psychological turns where you have those scenes of her sitting in like basically alone in the entire galaxy in the future. Like she, yeah. the, the whole rest of the galaxy is a wasteland. Yeah, I had a, I had a mush, bad mushroom trip like that once. <laughs> <laughs> this is maybe kind of a dumb question, but what is she eating in the future in which everything has been destroyed? I guess she probably has some sort of um, replicator. Replicator, right? Yeah. She's going back in time to eat and then coming back. Well, right, see, that's what I was wondering. Does, does, does she have to? Yeah, does she have to make trips? And she just like shows up at McDonald's and just orders a bunch of food <laughs> and then disappears again. Or something. <laughs> Getting back to Giorgio, by the way, one thing that maybe I just missed a, a, an explicit answer to this. Um, and, and by the way, I agree. She's a great, she's a lot of fun. I love watching her character on, on screen. But um, it's never entirely clear to me who exactly knows her real identity. Um, obviously, it's clear that some people do. But then, you know, does everyone in Starfleet? I don't think so. But then it's like, no. who who does? You know, I, well, it, Pike didn't know. Like, you know, right. so if Pike doesn't know, given that he's high ranking, then clearly only a couple of people at Section 31 know, in addition to the people who lived through it. So Michael knows. Right. I mean, it's not even entirely clear to me who are we to assume that everyone from the original crew know, knows it or not even that. I, I don't know. I'm just I, I'm very... I, th that was a question that I often had. I'd be, in, you know, I'd have a scene with her in it and I'd be like, wait, does that person know who she is? You know, I, anyway, uh, you know, again, I might have just missed something with that, but. I had a related response where it was, I just forgot for long stretches of the show that people don't know that, that about her. And then, you know, once every few episode there, episodes, there'd be a reminder and I'd be like, oh, right, this is supposed to be a secret, but they don't really develop that in any way. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the, the original Giorgio was really famous and died in spectacular fashion. So you would think that most people in Starfleet, if they encounter this Giorgio, would know that she can't be the original unless, I don't know, did they have some cover well, story? Well, they or shipped something? her off to Section 31, right? So, you know, she wouldn't be serving closely with with members of Starfleet that she had been serving with before. So they probably just, in order to not let you know, get it out that in order to remain classified that she was, you know, part of the mirror universe, they probably just said, oh, no, she's working at Section 31 now. And that's the end of it. And that's most people just accept that. But like, right. how would Pike There's some not sort of know. cover story that they invented, Pike I think, would... in episode in this in season one. Yeah, I mean, these 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 organizations have always been very like you're on a need to know basis. So there's no reason that Pike would have known because, you know, he wouldn't, wouldn't he have, have known that George that the original Giorgio died in the Battle of the Binary Stars? Like you would think he would keep up on news. But like I think that. that I think that what they were saying with that was that 
they sent out an official Starfleet press release saying, right. oh, by the way, Giorgio didn't die. She was on a secret mission, and now she works for Section 31, you know, yeah, <laughs> something okay, along I those see, lines. Yeah. But, I don't know, it didn't bother me. I, it was one of those things that, you know, it, it sort of, you're supposed to infer that things have happened, but mm. that Pike wouldn't know. And that actually ended up being a really interesting conversation with her and Michael Burnham, or, you know, Pike and Michael Burnham, where they're talking about, where Pike's going, this all doesn't add up. And she's like, yeah, I know, it's a long story, I'll tell you sometime. <laughs> and I actually wish that they had included that scene on screen, because I think it would have been interesting to watch, you know, Michael explain all of this to Pike. I mean, doesn't he wink at Giorgio right at the end, indicating he maybe does. he does know? Like, maybe he knows more than you know he let on, or maybe they did have that conversation, but they had it off off screen. Right, right. Hmm. All right. So let's see. So then we have like a giant space battle. Are we going to talk about Arium? Oh, we can talk. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Sarah. Talk about Arium. Well, I just I really love that episode. Like, I loved that episode. That episode, to me, felt like, you know, the standalone episodes that you, you know, sort of uh, refer back to when you talk about what makes Star Trek special. And you, you know, you talk about the inner light or you talk about um, measure of a man, that kind of thing. Like, and, and it was such a accomplishment that they... You know, a lot of people complained about this, actually. They're like, well, they had this character in the background, and then all of a sudden they, you know, they explored just enough of her character so that they can kill her off, and and they were upset about it. And to me, I thought it was a brilliant decision because, you know, she's been with us all along this, you know, I actually called her Daft Punk to um my partner i was like i was like i was like oh daft punk is here in the scene and and i love her and like you know she was always sort of in the background and she was one of the characters that you wanted to see more of right and so when they finally do you know you you know you sort of you are introduced to this idea well something happened with her and the sphere data where you know something uh pierced her I or entered her or whatever and uh, corrupted her um, because she's, you know, an augmented human. And um, so the fact that, that, that she, you know, they, they sort of wove together this story in just one episode of having us recognize that she is this loved character, that Tilly loves her, um, you know, that she has this strong bond with the rest of the crew and then gives herself for those, for her friends and begs Michael to, you know, throw her out of the airlock. And I was, I mean, I've I've watched this episode three times and all three times I've just lost it, like totally crying. (laughs) Yeah. I agree. I agree. It was good. I mean, I, I'm a little bit with the people who would have liked to see more development. I mean, it's a very obvious choice that they've made not to develop the bridge officers that much. I mean, we don't, you know, a lot of them, I'm still not sure even what their names are. I think it, if it were up to me, I would have like gotten rid of the um, Culber coming back to life plotline and used that time to develop some of those characters more. But um, I don't know. I thought it worked pretty well the way it is. I don't have any huge problems with it. It feels like in general this season they tried to shine a little bit more of a spotlight on the bridge crew, but like, you know, 20% more not really developing them fully the way we've necessarily seen with some of the other Star Trek series. But at the same time, like we, you know, in TOS, like how how long was TOS on before they did anything with Sulu? 
you know, like that, that was sort of a standard, like there are primary bridge characters and there are secondary bridge characters. And those bridge characters, you know, very rarely, even with Uhura, I think it took a long time to really get a sense of who Uhura was other than this beautiful, you know, comms officer that was sort of, um, there to, in the, you know, in, in the initial episodes provide eye candy. Like she, it took a while for them to really do anything with her character. So I feel like it's sort of, you know, while I would totally, I agree, I would love to see more of like, oh, oh, is super compelling. Um, you know, some of the other characters and Kayla, um, I really, you know, at the same time, like, I feel like it's actually more traditionally track, like that they have done that in the past. Well, I, I, first of all, I totally agree. It was one of my favorite episodes. I thought it was really, really emotionally powerful. Um, I also feel like it didn't bother me because it felt to, you know, the fact that it sort of seemed to come out of nowhere with her character. But um, because I feel like that, again, is kind of a callback to this tradition. Like, there have been these favorite episodes of mine, like the, the one from Next Generation, The Lower Decks, where they... Yeah, you know, they, they'll suddenly just have an episode with completely unknown characters who are, you know, were working in the lower decks or they did a couple of episodes of that in Voyager, too, with the sort of underperforming members of the crew that suddenly yeah. were in the limelight. Um, and I feel like it was kind of like a bridge officer version of one of those episodes. But it was also th- they had planted these seeds in their earlier episodes with the data being implanted in her head and her mind being controlled. So, I mean, you, you had a little build up to it, but it, it felt like one of those episodes to me. And just like those episodes, it stood out to me as really, really powerful and memorable. Yeah. All right. So then we get to the giant space battle. Uh, I was really impressed. Well, actually, before we get to the giant space battle, so f- they decide that they have to, first they're going to try, um, destroying the sphere data by blowing up, you know, uh, evacuating discovery and then blowing up the ship in classic Star Trek fashion. But this, this was another thing to me where I'm like, I don't know why they think this is going to work. Cause I thought that Michael Burnham's mother had established pretty clearly that, it was impossible to destroy the sphere data. And it seems like after, you know, all the time she had spent trying different ways and different timelines, you know, it seems like you would, you would at least doubt pretty seriously that this is going to work. Someone should have at least, I did feel like there should have been a line where somebody says, well, what if the sphere data tries to protect itself? And somebody else says, there's no way that it can be that advanced to infiltrate our ship systems or something like that, you know, to that level. Well, because they're used to, you know, they have multiple levels of security to initiate auto-destruct, right? And so they, and they're, they're using this ship actively. There's no reason for them to think that it had, you know, that it would have those powers or develop them if it was threatened. And yet, at the same time, there is. So I do feel like they could have resolved that, um, you know, moment of unbelievability to have somebody suggest it as an option. Like, hey, guys, this might happen. And for that character to end up being correct. Yeah, I mean, it could just be, you know, somebody says, why don't we try blowing up the ship to destroy the sphere data? And someone says, like, do you think that's going to work? Like, we're, you know, yeah. and, and they just say, like, well, do you have a better idea? And the person's like, well, no. And they're like, all right, well, let's yeah. do that then, mm-hmm. you know. Exactly. Um, but yeah, but so actually they do come up with a better idea, which is they're going to transport the sphere data far into the future 
and they're, they're going to build a uh, another time travel suit from the schematics that they've gotten their hands on, and Michael Burnham is going to lead Discovery far into the future where this AI is never going to be able to get the sphere data. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I don't know what you guys... And I, I thought the special effects were just mind-blowing, like just for a TV oh, show. God. Uh, yeah. I was just like, yeah. holy... The evacuation corridors. I, yes. I, I'm pretty sure I jizzed my pants. <laughs> I was... <laughs> I don't know if that's possible, but... <laughs> but I was... That was amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Right. It felt like the special effects were on the level of the of the feature films, of the Abrams feature yeah. films. It was... It was... There was no point where I felt that the the budget you know came up short or anything it just it seemed like whatever crazy and obviously i think in the the premiere and the finales where you see these particularly impressive special effects but it it just felt in general like whatever they wanted to do they did it and it looked good Mm -hmm. yeah and even like even when it's not the big space battles or whatever but like every shot on this show is like a beautiful painting or something i mean even there would just be scenes where um uh, Captain Pike is sitting at his desk and they're having a conversation and there's, it's like this, they're all blue. And then there's like this yellow light coming in through the viewports mm-hmm. and it was just gorgeous. I mean, you know, I would get distracted just looking at how, how pretty the colors were and, you know, have to go back and watch the dialogue again. Yeah. The attention to detail of this show and the, and the fact that they finally have a proper budget for the first time in Star Trek history, you know, really, of, of the series, uh, is is one of the things, I think, that sets Discovery apart. Mm-hmm. Well, and the fact that the technology has reached the point where you could do something like this on a TV budget. Well, I mean, they had they have $8 million per episode. You know, imagine if they had $8 million per episode of, of TNG. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what the budget was, but my sense was that for the time, TNG was a very well-budgeted show. It's just there, it, that was still way below what you could do in feature films. And so, and, and, you know, just that stuff dates. Yeah. And tech and television in general has changed. Like, you know, we have bigger budgets for television now because television is so much more important now. Like, you know, ever since the Sopranos and the, the sort of dawn of the golden age of television and all of that. And the fact that we have huge cultural events set around TV shows, uh, you know, in general, they have so much more flexibility to explore. You know, that's why I get mad when people are, are mad about paying money for the app or paying money to, to watch Star Trek. And I'm like, really? You really want your Star, your Star Trek to stop in the middle of the battle so that you can watch a baby food commercial? Seriously, is that what you're asking for right now? I think in, in the TNG days, I think just making that ship with all the viewports and lights and everything fly past the camera, I think that cost like $8 million using uh, you know, oh, the yeah. technology at the time. Right. I partly just think that because I remember Doctor Who producers complaining about how their budget compared it was their budget was like one eighth the budget of TNG. So <laughs> they were always like, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so we have this amazing space battle. Uh, Giorgio manages to trap um, control the AI, which is I, I don't know if we even mentioned is taken over the body of, of Leland, the head of Section 31. And kind of tricks him and manages to to knock him out uh, just before Discovery uh, travels into the future. Um, did you guys know that – who who thought – and so I assume in season three they're just like in the future. They're just far in the future and we're not going to – it's all going to be all new aliens and all new worlds and stuff or does everyone think that's what's going to happen? That's yeah, Kurtzman yeah. I think was interviewed and said that they're going to face a new 
crisis. So I don't think they're going to, you know, do anything like say that control is still there in the future and is still after this, the uh, data. I think they, you know, from what I read in this interview, I feel like they're actually just going to go in a completely new direction and have a new, you know, a new foe. Yeah. And I think that's cool. Cause I've been, t- I mean, like, you know, I enjoyed the show well enough, but I, you know, after all the prequels, you know, you had Enterprise, and then you had the J.J. Abrams movies, and then you had this. It's kind of like, I've always, like, let's just go beyond, um, you know, Deep Space Nine and Voyager and, like, see what happens in the future of the of the Star Trek. So, um, I mean, I don't know if we necessarily had to go a thousand years into the future, but, uh, you know, that works. Plus, after watching what happened to Game of Thrones, I really appreciate Wait, when... no spoilers. <laughs> oh, no. I'm not going to say anything specific about Game of Thrones, but like I, I do appreciate when they wrap up things at the end of each season, because if they have an overall story that they're trying to tell, which is like a mystery and that lasts several seasons, it's almost like you're you're just begging to for them to be like, oh, yeah, it was heaven. <laughs> you know, so I feel like I, I really appreciate it when they wrap up things, major plot points at the end of each season and start new ones so that, you know. They don't uh, lead us along for eight years and then, you know, shit the bet. Well, now, have any of you watched the uh, the short trek webisodes? I have not. Yes. So they're great. Yeah, they, they are actually fantastic. I mean, if you haven't, you definitely should. Uh, there's only four of them for season two. Why don't you um, just, but, Chris, explain what explain what those are? So they made like little fifteen to twenty minute. Um, four four of them episodes that they're calling short treks that are set during the timeline of season two um, that are, you know, basically like full full episodes, except only 15 minutes long. They focus on one like little little uh, incident, basically. Um, so, you you know, for example, the 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 Queen Mahani Ikahali Kapo that that uh, what's her name? Tilly is friends with and you know toward the end of this season that helps build the the drive that gets them to to go into the future Th- that is all planted in the first of these webisodes webisodes you you know you you see how they meet each other and then um the reason i bring them up is so in one of these episodes which was a great one possibly my favorite one called calypso um that episode is set a thousand years in the future and so I think it's conspicuous that those numbers match up with how far mm-hmm. in the, fu- the future they say they're going. And so we may end up, uh, and this isn't, you know, I mean, other people have speculated this too. It's not my own original thought, but we may end up in some form of that future where the protagonist in that episode is fighting against what seems like some nefarious overarching enemy that's referred to as the um, Vidresh. And a lot of people have said, well, Vidresh sounds like a morphing of the word Federation. And could it be that a thousand years in the future, the Federation has become some huge evil empire type of thing? Or, you know, it's hard to say if the protagonist in this episode was actually a good guy or a bad guy, because you don't really know too much about the wider story. But anyway, the the point being, that may be a little glimpse of the future that we're going to see. Well, and the writer of Calypso is the is the main writer on Picard on the Picard series. Ah, okay. Michael Michael Chabon or Chabon? Michael Chabon, yeah. Chabon, thank you. Yes. Oh, so wait, he's I wait, I didn't he's the main writer on Picard, you said? On the team? one of the writers yes. at least. One of them. Oh, that's or really maybe cool. the main one, yeah. Um oh and by the way, uh wait, so Dave, have you watched the webisodes? 
I I didn't I just heard about the you know I I binged this and I just finished watching it yesterday and so I didn't even hear about these webisode things until just like literally twenty minutes before we started recording oh. so I did I did go and watch Calypso because it was eighteen minutes long right um, but I haven't watched the other ones well I loved Calypso also because it includes and I never thought I'd see Audrey Hepburn in a in a yeah, Star Trek episode that was awesome and, that and was she's, so awesome you know one of my all time <laughs> favorites so that was great but um. Also, you should watch the one that comes after that because you actually get to see the original Giorgio in an episode, not the replacement Empress. Well, but like what you were saying about in the one I watched, um, the the main character, the main human character is fighting against some force that for for whom Betty Boop is a cultural reference right, so, point. So clearly it's an Earth based. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Do I? I don't know if I believe Betty Boop would still be a <laughs> cultural force a thousand years in the future. But I mean, I think that's part of one of the things you have to um, accept with Star Trek in general is that they'll sort of nod towards the idea that there's been culture since the 20th century, but in general, all the characters are primarily interested in 20th century cultural references, right, right. and that's just how it is. Maybe they just have a religion; they just all worship Betty Boop. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, so terrifying. Well, isn't, isn't part of the, the thing in Calypso, though, that, you know, the computer pretty much only had Earth's history to keep it company? Like, and so part of the whole, that whole thread was not that the society that existed at that time was obsessed with Betty Boop, but that the computer that had nothing but, but, you know, nostalgia, uh, in its memory banks to talk to, basically, was obsessed with Betty Boop. Well, no, but I thought that the, the the human he mentions Betty Boop, independent of what the computer's interests right. he, are. He had been watching it on the escape pod, which he stole from his enemy's ship, which is the right. Vidray, the Vidray ship. So, yeah. yeah. But it's exciting. You know, I'm definitely excited to see what this this version of the future is. I mean, I think they definitely uh, piqued my interest with that. Yeah. By the way, Michael Chabon is a is a is a big old tease. Like he he has an Instagram. He posted a picture, just a black JPEG, and he said, "I have a picture on my phone regarding the new Picard series that would break the internet if y'all could see it." <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was like, "Stop! Stop doing that to us!" <laughs> so, are you guys excited about the Picard show, or do you have any misgivings yes. or anything? No. Just pure pure enthusiasm. I mean, I'm always amazed in the forums that there's already people who are already complaining about the new Picard series, because of course they are. And it's like, seriously, like, first of all, it's a miracle, an absolute miracle that they got, that they got Patrick Stewart to do this. People always ask, like, in earnest, they honestly ask why he doesn't do the conventions. And it's like, hello, he doesn't have to. All the other actors are doing these conventions because it's a great supplement to their income. He doesn't need to do those. He has an, you know, an astounding career outside of Star Trek. And it's like people just aren't aware of that or they just don't know how these things work or something. But people are already complaining about the new series. And it's just mind boggling to me because it's so amazing that, that we get to have this. And I guarantee that Patrick Stewart's taste is well beyond all of us put together. And so if he likes it, you know, and he had to like it in order to say yes. He, he said, I'm only going to do this if you're going to do something interesting with the character and take the character somewhere that we haven't been before. He has no interest in redoing TNG episodes. And there is going to be a contingent of the fan base that is angry that they're not getting that, even though he flat out said, this is not what we're going to do. 
Has there been any any indication? Is this going to be like ten episodes and done, or is this going to be like seasons of Picard in the future? I think that they actually initially signed up for more than one season, but I'm not sure huh. if I'm remembering that correctly. But if it's successful, then you know, obviously they'll give give Stewart as much money as he needs to do more. So. Pipe your complaining down, Jerks. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> and apparently they're doing a Section 31 spinoff show, too? Yes. Does anyone know any more? I just, I just saw the headline. I assume that Ash Tyler and maybe George L. are going to be in that. I think that's why they both ended up, you know, not going with mm-hmm. Burnham. It wasn't actually clear to me... Did we see Giorgio get off right. Discovery? Because I, because I, when I heard about the Section Thirty One show, I assumed it was going to be about her. And then when my reading of the finale was that she was on the ship when it jumped into the future, or at least I didn't see any clear indications that she wasn't. Oh, maybe she wasn't. It was just the uh, the other one that you know that that went off. Ash. Well, they appointed Ash him head Tyler. of Section Thirty One now. Yeah. Or acting head, at least. I don't remember. Well, no, he was acting, and then they said, we're taking acting out of your title. Oh, I see. That's what it was, right. Maybe Giorgio steals the time suit and travels back in time, and that's why they don't have a time travel suit anymore. Does anyone have any theories about who the the guy was that they showed the half-face at the end? Remember? The end of the I just thought he was some Starfleet administrator, but you think he was somebody special? I think they, they were intentionally obscuring the upper half of his face for some reason. Maybe. Like to say that he was some someone that we'd find out who he was in the next season or something. I just thought he was supposed to be some faceless Starfleet bureaucrat. And so, you know, it didn't really matter what he looked like. But I guess we'll there see. Were the, the, fan, the fan forums, I'm not the only one who thought that. <laughs> there were a lot of people on the fan forums was like, what were they saying? You know, is, is Control still alive or is 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 that someone we should know? So... If they if they didn't m- intend anything by it, they sure shot it in a creepy way. Yeah, I could genuinely imagine it going either way. Like, I definitely just saw it as just a random Starfleet bureaucrat, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were setting something up. But I also wouldn't be surprised if people were making a big deal out of something that they didn't really. Oh, yeah, we'll definitely do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sarah, do you feel like following these fan forums, does that add to your quality of life? Or like just, like can't I ask stay myself away. that every day. Or does it just raise your blood pressure? <laughs> yeah, I ask myself that every day. There are there are genuinely entertaining. It's almost as if, unfortunately, the fan forums that are the ones that are most entertaining that add the most to my life are also the ones that frustrate me the most. Mm. And so it's not an option to just you know. And people try. People try so hard they that to form their own off groups. And then they get really fascist and people are like, you know, banning other people because they disagree with them and stuff like that. And some of the some of the smaller groups are actually where you have the most trouble. So when you have the big ones that are sort of moderated well, um, you know, my favorite is Star Trek shitposting. It is hilarious. It is occasionally disturbing. Uh, but the mods are really good. And that's that's where it, what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, since I uh, binged it. And, and Anthony too, I guess we, you know, we must not have, uh, you know, read any stuff in between episodes. I mean, Chris, did you, uh, did you follow any uh, online discussions I, or anything? I have not been. No. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I was binging this sort of the the beginning of me binging this was the tail end of Game of Thrones, and that was something where 
every week I was reading every theory. Well, probably not every theory because I think people go really deep, but like there was so much speculation and so much anticipation. And like my experience of this was almost completely the opposite where it was just pure, just going through the episodes. And it felt like such a relief to, <laughs> to not have this sort of incredible weight of expectation and anticipation attached to every single hour and instead just to treat it as a story on its own terms. That was really nice. I also tend to not follow those sorts of uh, fan sites only because I, I'm I'm super weird about spoilers. And even though these are just fan theories, it's like a clock, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And so I feel like just the fact that someone might spoil something for me that actually I would, you know, it is going to be what happens. I don't, I, I like to avoid them for those reasons too, but that's, that's just me. I'm just weird. So has CBS, have they gotten you to sign up for all access like on, on an ongoing basis or do you just sign up for it, watch Star Trek and then cancel it? I have not canceled it yet, but I think that's mostly out of inertia. Um, <laughs> I, I've thought about canceling it and then re-upping it once they start airing Picard or season three, whichever comes first. Um, but I don't know. I feel like, you know what? I, I'm really pleased with the fact that I've gotten as much entertainment out of watching the show that I have. And so if it means I pay an extra 20 or 30 bucks until the next season starts, you know, spread out over, you know, small. Well, they've got, they've got other great stuff on there. Like they yes. have the twilight zone, you right. know, the new twilight zone is really good. And, you know, they, they have realized that their ownership of Star Trek is a cash cow and they are, you know, bringing out new series. So we are year round subscribers. And for the moment, we're just watching, you know, uh, discovery, you know, again on the off season after it finishes as well as when it rolls out. But, and hey, they have the original Beauty and the Beast with Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman, all the episodes, <laughs> which is an amazing show that, that George R. R. Martin worked on as a writer, by the way. It is interesting that we're now, we went from this period where I think probably everyone on this podcast was roughly of an age, you know, growing up in the late 80s and 90s where there was always a Star Trek show on, sometimes multiple Star Trek shows on. And then obviously there was this drought period where there was nothing and then just, you know, a, a, a big budget movie every few years. And now we're like suddenly going to have Star Trek on all the time again. Mm -hmm. And I definitely have mixed feelings about it because I'm on the one hand, I'm excited to to see what people come up with. And I think also when you have a bunch of different creators doing different shows, there's an opportunity for experimentation and, and for, you know, stuff that's really different. But I also worry that, you know, that it starts to not feel special anymore. The way that like when discovery came back, it was this feeling of real excitement. And in some ways, the way that like star Wars movies suddenly, you know, went from being, are starting to feel a little bit less like an event. I, I worry there's going to be a similar feeling around star Trek. Yeah. That, I mean, that's why personally I would prefer that they, you know, they tell like self-contained stories and then, you know, with an ending in mind and, you know, just do that and not necessarily like make, try to make everything as many seasons as are economic, you know, minimally economically viable. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we're pretty much, we're pretty much out of time. So, uh, I don't want to just bum everybody out with that <laughs> thought, but, um, I don't know. Any, any other final thoughts? Uh, I'm fine with it as long as I want the more Star Trek, the better, <laughs> as long as they don't split resources, you know, like if they were to, you know, reduce the writing staff of Discovery by half so that they could go work on the Picard show, that would that would upset me. But I don't mm -hmm. think they're going to do that. 
Yeah, as long as they keep the quality high, which, you know, so far I'm encouraged by the way CBS is handling this, um, then I'm all on board. I Going back all the way to DS9, I've always, back then I remember wishing that they would make a sort of buddy cop drama about Section 31 with O'Brien and uh, Bashir in it. And because they both, you know, had involvement with Section 31. So the fact that now we're getting some other version of uh, a Section 31 drama, I think could be really interesting. Um, You know, there's a lot of, because they're such a nebulous organization, there's a lot of room for more of the sort of morally ambiguous storylines that you tend not to get in Starfleet when the focus is on Starfleet itself. Um, And I think that could be a lot of, you know, you could have a lot of interesting it could almost feel like even if that did become a multi-season show, because, you know, a season could be going to infiltrate some planet or a different place, each each season could feel very, very different. Or it could be almost like a true detective type of format where, you know, you have some sort of different uh, Section 31 uh, thing going on each each time. But anyway, so I'm just excited to get all of it. <laughs> uh, Anthony, any final thought? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that there are other reservations I have about the writing that I'm not going to waste time, like, sort of <laughs> going into detail on in terms of just, I think, control. Going back was to the so- season one premiere, I have a few more things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's like, I mean, just, I think control is sort of underdeveloped. I thought the, 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 the way they explained the, the red signals, um, was like way too convoluted and, and sort of convenient. And so I have like lots of like asterisks and things that I wasn't crazy about, but like, the, the big difference is after the first season of Discovery, I was not excited about more Discovery. And after season two, Aww. I was like, yes, I cannot wait. I want to see more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think maybe we'll just end on that because I am excited to see, as I said, the future of the Star Trek universe a thousand years in the future. If there's an evil federation, that would be cool. And also with Picard, obviously, that's moving moving into the future, into uncharted territory, not just endless, uh, you know. Uh, prequels and things so yeah i think the the future of the star trek uh franchise is looking pretty good right now and definitely looking forward to seeing what comes next yeah and uh yeah i think we'll wrap things up there so we've been speaking with anthony ha sarah lynn mishner and chris avasco so thanks everyone so much for joining us thank you thank you it's always super fun and that was our panel so big thanks again to anthony ha sarah lynn mishner and chris avasco for joining us on the show Big thanks as well to Shelby Kruver, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it... Tell no one. Thank you for listening.